Luke chapter 17 is where we're at. And, you know, if you want to mark your place there, you can also uh, turn to uh, Daniel chapter 9. We're going to spend a fair amount of time in Daniel chapter 9 this morning um, as well. And let's get right to work, shall we? Luke 17. Um, By now, you should know that Luke 17 focuses on four essentials of the Christian life. We've looked at three of them. We'll look at the fourth today. So we've looked at the essential of forgiveness, the essential of faithfulness, uh, the essential of thankfulness, and the uh, essential today of preparedness. That's what we're going to look at. Now, the big idea of of our text today is living in preparation of Jesus's return. And The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is going to return to this earth. He promised that he's going to return. The scriptures are filled um, with the scriptures that point us to that. And it is a fact. You can take it to the bank. And kind of by by way of introduction to this idea of uh, preparedness, um, the the lesson comes from American history, actually, of... uh, uh, you know, from Valley Forge in 1776. Any students of American history here? Do you, do you remember? Can you tell me what the, the significant thing that happened at Valley Forge? George Washington crossed the Delaware, okay, at Valley Forge, right? There's a famous painting done in the 1800s. He's all standing up there all majestically in the bow of this little rowboat. Well, he, he crossed um, Valley Forge. He, he, he crossed the, 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 the river there, the, the Delaware River, and he was, the, the um, British troops had occupied New Jersey. Um, I don't know why you could have New Jersey, but anyway, they'd occupied New Jersey. And uh, sorry about that, brother. So, um, and so he's leading these troops across just to go back and retake the area. And so the commander, the, 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 the colonel who was commanding the British troops, his name was Colonel Rawl. And basically, as the story goes, he was playing cards when the messenger came with an urgent message, basically tell him, look, Washington's coming across with the troops and you need to get ready. And so apparently uh, he blew off the messenger, basically refused to stop his card game uh, to receive this urgent message. And by the time that he finished his card game and received the urgent message, it was too late at that point. And so the end result was that uh, the, the, um, the Washington and his troops prevailed and Colonel Rawl lost his honor. He lost the liberty of his soldiers. And before the day it was out, he lost his life. And here's what I want to tell you. You hold in your hand today an urgent message from God, okay? And it is, it is a very timely message and God is never late. He is on time. And so my question for you is, are you prepared to meet Jesus? Are you prepared for his return? Are you prepared to stand before him? That's the big idea of our text. So Luke 17, we'll pick it up in verse 20 where we left off. And it says, now when he, Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation." Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there, do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven 
<clears throat> shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus here in Luke 17, he's still on his way to Jerusalem. And today, as he goes, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they hit him up with this question. They want to know, when will the kingdom of God come? Now, to understand this question, you need to understand the climate of the time, all right? It's been said that the Bible is divided into three parts. You have the Old Testament scriptures, which look ahead to Jesus. You have the Gospels, which look at Jesus. And the remainder of the New Testament looks both back to Jesus' first coming, and it looks forward to Jesus' second coming. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the theme of the law and of the prophets centered around the promised Messiah who was to come. The law was intended to point man to his need for the Messiah, and the prophets served to herald that Messiah's coming, okay? Now, the last of the prophets, the last of the Old Testament prophets was actually John the Baptist in the New Testament, but he was the the last of the Old Testament prophets in that he preceded Jesus Christ. And he quoted the prophet Isaiah in this regard. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day had two big problems. Two big problems. Number one, they missed the purpose of the law. And secondly, they misunderstood the plan of the Messiah. See, the purpose of the law was to show them their need for Jesus Christ, to show them that they could not keep the law. That's the whole reason that God gave his law in the first place, so that we would go, wow, I can't do that. But the religious leaders, they didn't get that memo. They figured they were made right with God by keeping the law and, you know, had, having this system of sacrifices and all, all to point to the need for a Messiah who himself was going to be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind, but they totally missed it. Paul told the Galatians this about this fact, the purpose of the law. He said, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the whole purpose of the law was to say, you need somebody to save you because clearly you need help. And that's, that's the whole idea of the law. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they missed that memo. And as well, they also misunderstood the plan of the Messiah. You see, the plan of the Messiah, if you will, it involves a two-step process. Okay, step one is that Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. And step two is that Jesus is going to come again. He's going to return for his church, and then he's going to return in his second coming to pour his wrath out on on an unrepentant world. Um, And and the Bible, you know, makes this very clearly. It, It lays out, step one, that Jesus would come first to atone for the sins of mankind, that salvation is by grace through faith. Listen to Paul's words again to the Ephesians. He said, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. I'll just hit the pause button right there and just say this. Have you ever taken a group picture? Who's the first person you look for in a group picture? You, right? When you take a group picture, you look for yourself, right? You just naturally do. And Paul basically tells the Ephesians here, hey, let me give you a snapshot, a group picture, and let let me just give you, you know, the picture of you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive. 
he goes on. He says, but God, he's you're a loser and you're dead in your trespasses and said, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For, here he says it again, in case you missed the memo, by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that's the first step. The second step in, the, in God's plan for the redemption of mankind is that after his death, burial, and resurrection, that Jesus is going to return a second time to pour out his wrath. And before that, he's going to return, not to the earth, but basically to the sky, and he's going to, hey, everybody out of the pool, he's going to rapture his church. This is the Lord's plan, okay? Now, the, the Pharisees, they missed all of that. They didn't understand that, and they should have. This is where you turn to to Daniel chapter 9. And you're going to want to turn there because we're going to camp out here for a little bit. Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going. We'll start off in the first and second verses and then we'll we'll fast forward to verse 24 and go from there. By the way, Daniel's about 14 books to the left, which sounds like a lot. It's only about thickness, about a quarter of an inch in your Bible to your left. All right, that'll get you in the neighborhood. Page 784 in my Bible, if that helps you, all right? <laughs> all right. So, so here's Daniel. He starts off, and he starts off with a timestamp. That's important. Here's what he says. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, in the first year of Darius, not our pastor Darius, but <laughs> Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the lineage of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, he's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, I understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. All right, he's setting the tone And he's putting a time stamp on that. That's going to be significant in a a minute. Turn to verse 24. He says, 70 weeks. Now, he's going to give the, the, the thing that he understood. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. He's talking to the Jews about Jerusalem. Um, And he says, 70 weeks are appointed to finish transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. He's going to accomplish this, and that's it, 70, 70th week or 70 week period. Um, actually, 69 weeks, and I'll explain that in a minute. Verse 25 Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. 
Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. You're like, what? What are you saying here, right? All right, let me, let me break this down. Seventy weeks. In Hebrew, weeks simply refers to a unit of seven, okay? And the Jews had Sabbatic years, all right? So the, the idea is that they divided, uh, Sabbatic years divided into weeks of years. And so what's, that's the idea here, what we're looking at, is that each week is comprised of a week of years, So when he says 70 weeks are determined, what he's saying is 70 weeks of years are determined for your people and for your holy city, for the Jews and for Jerusalem. And he said, and you know, for what purpose does he say they're determined? You look in verse 24, here's why they're determined. Um, He says, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to steal, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Who's the only one that can do that? Make an end of sin. Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is usually the right answer, by the way. If anybody asks you a question at church, the answer is usually Jesus. So Jesus is the only one who can do this, right? So 70 weeks are determined for Messiah, right? Um, and when God says they're determined, literally the idea is they're decreed, They're settled, they are marked out, take it to the bank, this is a done deal, right? God has determined that there would be 70 weeks of years marked out for Israel for them to receive Jesus in his first coming, that's important, and for them to be made right with God, putting an end to rebellion and sin, reconciling their iniquities, and bringing an end to their transgressions that are going to last forever. He's saying, look, here's when Jesus is coming. Here's when the Messiah is coming, and this is what he's coming to do. What is he coming to do? Verse 25 says very clear um, there that there's going to be 70 weeks of years until the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and uh, then it says 62 weeks later, Messiah is going to come, this first coming of Jesus. And so 70 weeks of years from the command. Why the timestamp at the beginning of Darius? Because, uh, or at the beginning of Daniel there, Daniel 9, verses 1 and 2. The timestamp is there so that we understand when the clock starts ticking. He's saying from this point, there's going to be seven weeks of years, and then there's going to be a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And, um, you know, you, you will see in Nehemiah talks about that command that goes forth um, and when it actually happened. It actually happened on March 14th, 445 B.C. And so um, as you continue reading there in verse 26, what you see is that the Messiah is going to be cut off and the word implies that he's going to be executed, but the text is quick to tell us he's going to not be executed for himself, right? Who's he executed for? For us, for the sins of all mankind, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So, so he says it's going to be cut off. And after this, he says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, what he's talking about is a precursor to what's going to happen in the end days. But first of all, he says the people of, of the Antichrist, he who is to come, 
And so when he says the people, who's he talking about? He's talking about, he's talking about Rome, the people of the Antichrist who is later to come. And this actually happened in 70 AD. He said, look, they're going to they're gonna come. They're going to destroy the temple. And that happened in 70 AD, just like Jesus said it would happen. The Romans invaded and, and, and did all, all that destruction. So um, the command goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in March 445 BC. And he says there's going to be um, 62 weeks of years after that that the Messiah is going to come. So you've got seven weeks of years, 49 years, until the command to rebuild the temple goes out. The command goes out in Nehemiah chapter 1. And then 62 weeks of years after that, you do the math, it's 434 years, then Messiah is going to come. And when we get to Luke chapter 19, that's exactly the day that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. Just as God promised. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he, he basically said this. I'll paraphrase it. He says, who else tells you what he's going to do before he does it? And he says, nobody. You know, he pulls a Babe Ruth and says, I'm going to send my Messiah. Here's the day I'm going to send him. Makes it loud and clear through the prophets. Puts a timestamp on it. And then he actually comes on that day. His first coming to atone for sin. And by the way, Where's Jesus headed now in Luke chapter 17? You can turn back to Luke chapter 17. Well, actually, hold on. I'm going to have you look at one more thing in Daniel. But where's he headed in Luke chapter 17? He's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to to keep his appointment with with being revealed as the Messiah, just as uh, was prophesied, (coughs) as Daniel was prophesying here in in Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel prophesied that there would be 70 weeks of years. We've accounted for 69 weeks of years, seven weeks of years before the command goes out and then the weeks of years after that uh, when Jesus actually enters in uh, to, to Jerusalem. That leaves you with 69 weeks of years, but Daniel has prophesied 70 weeks of years. What happened to the 70th week? Look at verse 26. It says, after the 62 weeks... So seven weeks of years, then 62 weeks of years, Messiah comes. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, right? He's going to be crucified. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, happened in 70 AD. He says, the end of it shall be with a flood, not a literal flood. This is talking about a flood of troops, that are going to come in. And he says, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, notice it's a lowercase h, he, this is speaking about Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, one week of years, seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years into it, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations, um, shall one be who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. The 70th week of years is when Antichrist comes on the scene and literally all hell breaks loose on earth, okay? That's the 70th week. Okay, you got all that, listen to this because this is key to where we're going. In between the 69th week of years when Jesus makes his first coming and dies on the cross for our sins, and the 70th week of years when the Antichrist comes and, and all hell breaks loose on earth, God hits the pause button. 
He hit the pause button between Jesus' crucifixion and when Antichrist will come on the scene and then Jesus will return in his second coming at the end of that seven-year period. God has hit the pause button. And you and I today, for the last couple of thousand years, mankind has lived in what has been called a parenthesis of years. We live in in a period of time where God has hit the pause button. Why has he hit the pause button? Because he loves the world, doesn't want anybody to perish, doesn't love the world system. He loves you. He loves the people of this world. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. This is his great desire, right? And so God is providing for the gospel to go out and for the lost to be found. And for those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith, You become a new creation. This is what the Bible promises. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. The Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart. God gives you the future promise of living in a glorified state with him in heaven. And he gives you the present promise that you now are his child. He changes your nature and he begins to give you new desires and and so on. We're still a piece of work. We're still, you know, sinners by nature and by choice, but we have a new nature and we are forgiven of the sins that we have. So thank you, Jesus. But not only that, not only that, but we know that when Jesus returns to pour his wrath out on the world, the Bible promises that he will first take us out of the way. That's called the rapture of the church. We're going to be looking at that in a few minutes. God will rapture his church. He is returning to pour out wrath, but before his second coming, after his first coming, but before his second coming, Jesus will will return, in a sense, to pull us out of the earth, to pull us out of the way before his wrath is poured out. Here's the way Paul put it to the Corinthians and then also to the Thessalonians. He told the Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery... We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Speaking of this rapture that's going to take place, again, he told the Thessalonians something similar. He said, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Now that phrase, caught up with them, caught up in the Latin Vulgate is translated raptus. This is where we get the word rapture from. People who say rapture is not in the Bible, it actually is in the Latin Vulgate translation. This is where we get it from. So understand there's a difference between the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church, okay? Difference between the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church. The chronology is this, very simply. Jesus came in his first coming to redeem us. Jesus will at some point soon rapture the church, take it out of the way, and then finally, after seven years of tribulation, Jesus will return in his second coming to pour out wrath upon those who have rejected him. Now you can turn back to Luke 17, and the idea is here in Luke 17, the religious leaders missed all of that. They shouldn't. They are students of the scriptures, 
The Old Testament scriptures that they had told them all of these things, but they missed it. They're looking for the promised Messiah, but they're looking for a conquering king who's going to kick Rome out and, and be a welcome addition to their empire. They miss the memo that they themselves are sinners who need a Messiah to save them and atone for their sins. They missed it all. So they're not looking for the suffering servant that Jesus needed to be in his first coming so that he could atone for our sins. They are looking for a conquering king. Now, Jesus will return as a conquering king in his second coming. But here in Luke chapter 17, he's fulfilling prophecy to redeem mankind as a suffering servant. Okay? Got to get that. So Jesus answers their question now. They're like, when's the kingdom of God coming? What's he say in verse 20? He says, the kingdom of God does not come by observation. That word observation is important. It's used only here once in the New Testament, right here in Luke 17. And it means literally to observe the future by signs. Warren Wiersbe says that it carries the idea of spying, of lying in wait, and of investigation. And basically, uh, what he says is that the Pharisees are watching intently for things concerning the Messiah to play out according to their expectation of how they're going to play out. You ever get that in your head? You have an expectation of how things are going to go, and then it didn't go the way you expected it to go, right? And that can cause some frustration for some, you know? And, and so basically what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here, he's going, look, Messiah's coming, but it ain't going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. It's not going to come by your careful observation looking for the things that you think are going to go down. It's not going to go that way. God's going to rock your world. This is what Jesus, by the way, in verse 21 is referring to when he says, Nor will they say here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now this is a very misconstrued verse. What does it mean that the kingdom of God is within you? Well, here's the thing. When Jesus tells these religious leaders that the kingdom of God is within them, he is not suggesting that these religious leaders, who he had no shortage of words of condemnation and rebuke for these religious leaders, he's not saying that they have within them the kingdom of God. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying, that word within, more accurately translated, is in your midst. What Jesus is saying is, look, you want to know when the kingdom of God's coming? The kingdom of God is in your midst. What's he saying? He's not talking about them, that the kingdom's within them. He's saying, the kingdom's right here in me, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're looking for the kingdom. Here is the kingdom. I'm the kingdom. I like the way David Guzik uh, explains this in his, in his commentary. He says, this was not a mystical revelation by Jesus that in some seed form the kingdom of God is within everyone in a new age sense. After all, Jesus would not have told the Pharisees that the kingdom of God was within them. He says, the statement of Jesus called attention to himself, not to man, like many, listen to this, this, is great. The Pharisees said that they wanted the kingdom of God to come, but you can't want the kingdom and reject the king. See, that's the idea. They go, where's the kingdom? He's like, it's right here. The kingdom is here. It's me, and you're rejecting me. So you, you ain't really wanting the kingdom because the kingdom starts and ends right here. You know. So the kingdom has arrived, 
here in Jesus' first coming, but it has not yet arrived in the fullness of his second coming. And so now Jesus begins speaking to his disciples about his second coming, verses 22 through 24. He says, then he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you guys are going to long for the days that I was with you. Days are going to come and you're going to look around and you're going to say, man, we miss Jesus. That's what he's talking about. You ain't going to see it. Verse 23, and they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them. Don't follow them. Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be lots of all, you know, imposters. There's going to a lot of, be a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah during that interim time. Don't listen to them. And certainly we've seen this play out just even in our day in a modern context. You, know, you think of Jim Jones, you know, and you think of David Koresh, you know, and others like him claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus goes, That's, it's not going to happen. He says in verse 24, for as the lightning that flashes from one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. He's like, look, when I come back, you ain't going to miss it, all right? You, you, you will see it. Everybody will know. So Jesus here, what's he doing? He's talking to his disciples about his second coming. When he is going to return to rapture the church, and then seven years later, after, the, after, the, um, after rapturing the church, after Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. He's saying, look, you're going to miss me during this time, uh, you know, but don't, don't worry, I'm going to be coming back, you're not going to miss it. But in verse 25, notice what he says, this is important. He says, but he, speaking of himself, must suffer, uh, but, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, Jesus is talking to his disciples here because they also are unclear of what his plan is. They shouldn't have been, but they were unclear. They also were in the kind of camp thinking Messiah is going to come and he's going to you know, come as a conquering king. So they thought Jesus was going to oust Rome and, you know, set up shop in, 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 in Jerusalem and that whole bit. This is why Peter rebuked Jesus, that famous thing where Jesus is talking about his crucifixion and Peter's going, no, it's not going to go down that way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter is trying to press Jesus into the expectation mold of, hey, you're coming as a conquering king. And Jesus is like, no, not first. He's coming as a suffering servant. They were also unclear on it. That's why he's saying this. He goes, look, you got to get it. I'm going to first suffer. I'm going to first die. That's part of the plan. So Jesus is speaking of a time after his crucifixion when the disciples are going to long for his return. But in the meantime, he warns them against these imposters. And by the way, the Bible says in the last days, there's going to be a lot of imposters. Uh, Jesus himself, Matthew 24, 24, he said, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. He's talking about the last days, how there's going to be more an increase in, in, in false prophets. All right, uh, Luke 26. He says, uh, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. He says, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah came 
that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus is talking about his second coming when he's going to pour out wrath upon the world. And he says, even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. This is his warning here. It says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus here gives us two examples of warning from the Old Testament. Don't miss it. He gives us the story of Noah. He gives us the story of Lot. Both stories, you will recall, they, they, they deal with the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous, right? So, you know, think about Noah. What's going down there? God's pouring out his wrath on a wicked world in a worldwide flood, but before he pours out his wrath, What's he do? He seals Noah and his family in the ark. That's a picture of rapture, by the way. That's a picture of how God takes the righteous and he takes them out of the world, seals them in the ark, right? You're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God when you receive Christ by faith. And and then he, he takes them out of the way, then pours out his wrath. Same thing with Lot. God pours out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah with with fire of hail and brimstone. But before he pours out his wrath, what does he do? He takes Lot and his family. Well, not all of them. uh, Makes it out. (laughs) We'll look at that in a minute. But he takes them out of the way, right? Picture of rapture. But here in this context, understand, Jesus is focusing on the wicked who won't be raptured. This is what he's focusing on. Jesus says in verse 30, 30, even so, it's going to be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What's going to be so? Just as the world in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot, right up until wrath was poured out, it was business as usual. It was party central. It was just everything's going to be continued on in normalcy. That's the idea. It's not to say that the world is healthy, going to be healthy before Jesus' second coming. If you read the book of Revelation, the world's going to be a mess. But what's going to be business as usual is the wickedness that prevails among humanity. That they basically look at everything that's going down in the world and they say, well, this is normal. And I invite you, you read any news article, you just tune into the world, what's going on in the world today where people think up is down and down is up and, and you know, things are being celebrated and all. You know, they, they, they revile and, and same exact people reviling and persecuting soldiers coming home from Vietnam and saying, you're a baby killer, now celebrate and have parades for killing babies. Same people. And you just go, wow, how on earth have we come to this? Because it's normal. It's business as usual. And Jesus says it's going to be that way right up until the wrath comes down and the fire falls. And so this is what he's talking about. It's going to be a mess. The wicked are going to embrace as normal and routine the things that are ungodly. And so Jesus warns us in verse 32, and this is what it all comes down to. 
We're wrapping it up here. Get this. What's Jesus' warning? What's your big takeaway today? Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. What happened? Well, Charles Spurgeon basically says of Lot's wife, she is to be most pitied of everybody in that story. Because Sodom and Gomorrah faced judgment because they were wicked through and through. You know, there was, there was this big debate between, between God and light. Like, oh, Lot, you know, hey, can we, can we just find some righteous people? He's like, help yourself. Go find them. They ain't there. And they ain't there. You can't find any of them. So he's like, it's time for you to go. And so, so they're going, and he's delayed in going. And finally, they got to grab him and, you know, yank him out, these angels that have come to, to save him and all. And his wife, the text says she lags behind. She lags behind. And what is it? She, she just loves Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, and, and you, could, you could take her out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but you couldn't take Sodom and Gomorrah out of her. She didn't want to go. She loved it too much. And so they're going. She lags behind, and she looks back. And who knows whether that means she ran back, whether she left in the first place, whatever it is, she loved the world too much, and she turned into a pillar of salt. And the Lord is, and Charles Spurgeon says she's to be most pitied of all because she almost made it. Everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah got fried. She had an opportunity to escape, and she almost made it. But then back she went. This is a look-in-the-mirror kind of text for us here. We got to understand, Jesus is coming back. He will be on time when he comes back, and it'll be business as usual on the earth, and you got to ask yourself the question, where am I going to be? Where am I going to spend eternity? Is Jesus my Lord and Savior? Is, is Sodom and Gomorrah going to be, gonna be you know, repented of and, and given over to the Lord? Or am I going to embrace this as business as usual? That's, the, that's the, the, the lesson we have to have here. And on that note, Jesus says this. He says, whoever seeks to save his life, verse 33, will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. He says, I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. This is a cultural thing. This is not to be inferred anything else there, all right? Two men in one bed, one's going to be taken, the other left. Verse 35, two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Verse 36, two men will be in the field, the one will be taken, and the other is left. Some of you don't have verse 36 in your Bibles, uh, and you're kind of weirding out about it right now. Don't worry. Jesus actually said this in another gospel, so these are Jesus' words. He may not have said it here. It may be a copyist error. It may have been added, but we know that Jesus did say these, in fact, words in, in another gospel, so no worries there. Verse 37, and they answered, and they said to him, where, Lord? Hey, where's all this going to go down? And so he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Very controversial verse. Nobody knows exactly what this means. Some people say it's referring to Armageddon. But, but really, most likely, what it is, is it's a figure of speech, which just basically means when judgment is ripe, it's surely going to happen. It's, it, it's probably just, hey, look, when, this, when, this, when it's ripe, this is when it's all going to go down. 